everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pilgrim Devotion. I am so glad that you have joined us. My name is Michael Howard, and I'm the senior pastor of Seaford Baptist Church, and I am the host of this podcast, which is for anyone inside or outside of Seaford Baptist Church, anybody who's living that pilgrim life, representing the kingdom of God in the kingdom of man. And I'm excited about what we are going to be doing over the next couple of weeks together here on the podcast. We are going to be looking at eschatology. We're going to be looking at the four different views on the millennial reign of Christ, the four different views on Revelation 21 through 6. And the reason that I want to do this is because we have been preaching through the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights at midweek ever since last summer. It's taken a bit of time. We are approaching chapter 19 as I'm recording this podcast. It will air the week of Labor Day, and then part two will air the week after that. And we should wrap up sometime around the end of February, end of March. It's taken a while because our midweek program, we, we do some stop and start. we got prayer meetings, and we've got other people who will preach, and missionaries that come to town, and we'll take little breaks here and there. So it's taken a bit of time, but man, have I loved preaching through the book of Revelation. The church has responded to uh, the preaching of the book of Revelation really well. We've had a strong uh, crowd there on Wednesday nights. Uh, a tick up in attendance certainly occurred. A tick up, an uptick. Uh, but a- attendance went up at midweek, no doubt, when I started preaching through Revelation, because I think a lot of pastors desire it. I have heard Vody Bauckham say that there's no book of the Bible that church members want their pastor to preach through more, and there's no book of the Bible that pastors want to preach through less. But I would look at any pastor and say, preach through Revelation, man. Preach through Revelation. Don't be afraid. Whatever your viewpoint is, be faithful to the text and preach from that conviction wherever you're at at that moment. So if you're, we're going to talk about these four different views. Whatever camp you're in, preach from it. Tell the church, this is where I land, and I'm going to preach faithfully from this text to the best of my ability and, and, and according to the grace that God gives me, and go for it. Because what I have seen is uh, people not just loving Revelation, but loving their Bibles more because of it. I, I've had my own convictions about the Word of God being the Word of God, that the Bible is God's self-revelation. It has only been deepened by the preaching uh, by preaching through Revelation. And I'll tell you why. It's because I think if you took just the 65 books of the Bible before Revelation and you plopped it down in front of William Shakespeare or you plopped it down in front of, I don't know, name the, you know, whatever great writer, and you said, I want you, okay, greatest writer man has ever known, I want you to write the 66th book of the Bible in your own strength, in your own sufficiency, I don't think they're coming up with Revelation. I don't think Revelation 1 through 22 is coming out of that pen unless the Holy Spirit is inspiring it, unless it is the God-breathed word. Because it's just so watertight. It just takes the whole Bible and goes, just sums it up and seals it up. The Bible is written on three different continents. It's written in uh, two different languages, really three once you add in the Aramaic. It is written by people from all different types of backgrounds, all different types of education levels, people who didn't even know each other, people that lived a thousand years apart from one another. I mean, it is such a diverse book, and yet it has one unified message. One message. And the book of Revelation sums it all up, and it preaches that message while alluding to 
the text, alluding to Genesis, alluding to Daniel, alluding to Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the words of Jesus. I mean, it is just packed with all of these references and allusions, and it is absolutely rich wherever you land in your interpretation of it. If you are an Orthodox Christian, which again, there's four different camps you can land in when it comes to the millennial reign of Christ and still be totally Orthodox, four different views that have been accepted by the historic Orthodox Christian Church, um, wherever you land, I hope that as you stand up in your camp and you say, yeah, I'm this, I'm a dispensationalist, or I'm a historic premillennialist, or an amillennialist, or a postmillennialist, I hope you go and The word of God is rich and revelation proves once and for all, clearly this is God's self-revelation. So uh, I just have come to love the book of Revelation even more through the preaching of it. And I think the church has had kind of the same experience, really just loving the book and and growing in love for our Lord as we grow uh, in love for his word. I want to define some terms for us, and then I'm going to read Revelation 21 through 6. And then uh, we will dive into the premillennials. We're going to talk about the two views on premillennialism in this podcast. And then we will talk about uh, amillennialism and postmillennialism in depth in the next podcast. And the reason I really want to do this is because as we get to chapter 20, I know that it could be confusing. (laughs) I know that you're going to wait a second. There's four different views. And what do they believe? And what do they believe? And what do they believe? I will, I'm will. i hoping that we'll be able to have some time to lay out the four views and that I will have time just to preach the text. Because when, I, when it comes time for me to preach Revelation 21 through 6, I'm not going to lay out four views. I'm hoping to do some teaching before the preaching where I can lay out the four views. But when it comes time to preach, I'm going to preach from one viewpoint, as I've done with the rest of the book, because I just think that makes for more effective preaching. Uh, but this is kind of like this concrete anchor people can go back to and listen to. That's what I'm hoping it'll be. You might be listening to it right now in October or November as opposed to when it's going to air because you you talked to me and you said, okay, I heard you preach it. I'm a little bit confused because uh, I'm, I'm not – I'll put the cards on the table right now. I'm not a dispensational premillennialist, okay? I'm not. And that is the predominant view in evangelicalism over the last 100 years. So there may be people in our church who go, well, this is odd. This is new, what you have taught here tonight. And I just want to be able to give these links out and say, hey, go listen to this. Go listen, and, and hopefully you can come to a better understanding of what all of these different four views teach. And wherever you land, it's important. Right, It's important to read the scriptures and understand them and to say, I, I think this is what the Bible is saying. I think that's something Christians should strive to do. And yet, don't be crazy about it. Right? People talk about cage-stage Calvinism or cage-stage Arminianism or cage-stage provisionist. Um, those are kind of like different views on how God saves. We're talking about eschatology today. Uh, that would be soteriology, how God, a study of how God saves. You know, there's people that go cage stage, and it's just all they want to talk about. And every text in the Bible becomes about it. And it's like, you know, somebody hose these folks down. <laughs> and they call it cage stage because it's like, you ought to be locked in a cage for a while before you talk to anybody about this. Don't be cage stage about your eschatology. Uh, and so let's go ahead and start defining some terms. Eschatology is the study of the Bible's teachings about the events leading up to the second coming of Jesus. 
Don't be cage stage about that. Don't don't be that person that needs to be hosed off about that. You shouldn't leave churches over eschatology. You can talk to your pastor about it. You can have good conversation about it. But there's no reason to part fellowship, uh, depart from fellowship with people over eschatology. There's no reason to be angry about it. If the study of Jesus' second coming leaves you angry, I would say try again. And there's just no reason uh, to try to shove it down the throat of every text that you read in the Bible. You know, you don't want to be that person who's reading, you know, Genesis 38 and you're like, oh, here's my dispensationalism or here's my amillennialism. No, 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 no. That's, that, you know, settle down. That's bad Bible study, right? Uh, and you certainly don't want a pastor who's constantly doing that. That's bad preaching. So with all that said, let's get into it. Defining some terms. Four different views on end times events. And those four different views really have to do with the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth, described in Revelation 24 through 6. Let me just go ahead and read the text. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, verses 4 through 6, this is the crux of the matter. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So there's four different views on that text right there. There is the premillennial view, which is the belief that the millennium that's talked about there is a future event and that Jesus will return before it, thus pre, the millennium. There's the amillennial view, which says the millennium is symbolic, and it's symbolic of Christ's present reign among his children, among his people. And really, amillennialism is kind of a misnomer because it sounds like no millennialism, while truly what an amillennialist believes in is now millennialism, that the millennial reign of Christ is happening right now and that it's happening in the hearts of Jesus's people in the church. Then there is postmillennialism, that Jesus will return after the millennium or post the millennium. And the millennium is a time in which most of the world submits to Jesus and, and peace and justice are, are reigning. And so then within premillennialism, you have two different types of premillennialists. You have dispensational premillennialists and you have historic or classic premillennialists. We'll talk about both today. A couple other terms I'll go ahead and define for the next couple weeks of conversation. The church age. That would be the time period in between Jesus' ascension and Pentecost uh, to Jesus' second coming. So beginning of the church, Jesus' ascension to heaven, uh, to the time in which Jesus will return bodily to earth to reign as king. That's the church age, that time in between those two wonderful, glorious events. The word eschatology, I said, that, that's the study of, of, of the end times. 
another word you might hear me use is rapture, which is the event described in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17, when Jesus returns for his people. A dispensational premillennialist will say the rapture and the second coming are two separate events, and they place the rapture either before the Great Tribulation or in the midst of it, and the second coming after uh, the Tribulation. But historic premillennialists, amillennialists, and postmillennialists, they will understand the second coming of Jesus and the event described in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17 as being the same, uh, same event as them happening simultaneously. You also might hear me talk about the Great Tribulation. This is the time on earth when disasters are happening and people who love Jesus, they are suffering intense persecution. It, it possibly lasts seven years. Premillennialists are going to place this Great Tribulation near the end. A dispensational premillennialist typically believed that uh, they're going to believe the tribulation will last a literal seven years. A lot of classic historic premillennialists will view the reference to seven years as being symbolic. They'll just say, no, nah, it's just a complete amount of time ordained by God for the church to be purified on the earth. Most amill and postmill folks, they're going to treat the tribulation as a symbol of calamities, a, a symbol of persecutions that have taken place throughout church history during the church age. So I think those are all the terms that we really need. All four views agree that Jesus is going to come again for those who love him. All four views agree that Jesus calls his followers to be ready all the time for his return. All four views say nobody knows the day or the hour. But let's get into where the four views begin to depart and let's seek to answer some questions. Will Jesus return physically and reign on the earth for a thousand years? Will Christians go through a seven-year tribulation? Will the second coming of Christ occur at the same time that believers meet Christ in the air? Will Christians be raptured? Will others be left behind? What's going on with the nation of Israel in the end times? Like, these are all the sorts of questions that um, the different viewpoints are going to seek to answer, and we'll see what the different answers are and, uh, and we'll see where we come out of this. So again, not looking to really plant a flag for all of you and say, all right, see, clearly you must believe this. I'll put my cards on the table as we go. Uh, but, but no, I really just want everybody to be understanding of the four views. So with that said, let's jump into the one that's most popular. It's dispensational premillennialism. This has been the predominant view in American evangelicalism over the last century. Dispensational premillennialism probably represents the, the, the eschatology of most of the members of the church that I pastor, despite the fact that I haven't been preaching from that viewpoint uh, on Wednesday nights. And brothers and sisters, thank you for your grace. Thank you for having an open heart and open mind as you come to the Word of God and just seeking to learn. I think it's been, I think it's been brilliant. But dispensational premillennialism is the belief that Jesus is going to come back to earth after a seven-year tribulation— and that he will rule during a 1,000-year millennium of peace on the earth. And in addition to that, alongside that, God is still going to give the nation of Israel the land described in Genesis 15, 18. In fact, let me read that passage right now. And I'm using my, uh, my Logos app on my computer, so you'll hear a little typing because I'm going to be jumping from you know, Scripture to Scripture quite a bit. So Genesis 15, 18, on that day... The Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. 
So that's the, the full extent, ultimately, of King Solomon's kingdom as you get further on in the Old Testament. And God is, in, in, in the dispensational premillennial viewpoint, God is still going to give that physical land to the nation of Israel. And, and when I say the nation of Israel, I'm talking about people with Jewish blood in their veins. I'm talking about uh, the physical nation of Israel. Most dispensational premillennialists are what you would call a pre-tribulationist, and they would understand Revelation 4, 1 uh, through 2 to refer to the rapture. So again, let me pull that up. Revelation 4, verse 1 says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And so they would say that refers to the rapture. And the rapture is understood as the event when Christ removes Christians from the earth before the great tribulation begins. Some dispensational premillennialists, I, I hate to confuse you here, they're going to say that it doesn't happen before the Great Tribulation begins. It happens in the middle of the Great Tribulation, three and a half years through the seven years. So they would be called mid-tribulationists. So even within the dispensational premillennial camp, you have a divergence with those that are uh, pre-tribulationists and those who are mid-tribulationists. And the mid-tribulationists, again, they just believe the rapture is going to occur in the midst of that intense suffering on the earth. What a dispensational premillennialist uh, pre is going to emphasize is that the rapture and the second coming are two separate events, that the rapture comes before the Great Tribulation, and that the second coming occurs after the Great Tribulation. During the seven years of tribulation, natural disasters, wars, these sorts of things are going to occur on the earth. People who are faithful to Jesus, they're going to suffer intense persecution, and Dispensational premillennialists will also emphasize the, the literal interpretation of the book of Revelation. According to dispensationalists, during the Great Tribulation, many Jews are going to turn to Christ. There will be kind of this Jewish revival. God's promises to Abraham and his offspring are unconditional. Therefore, again, these Jews will still receive the land described in Genesis 15, 18. And because of this belief, the establishment of the modern nation state of Israel in 1948, that's huge. For a dispensational premillennialist, they're going to say that that fulfills key end times prophecy there. And they're going to look at the references to Israel in Revelation to refer to the physical nation of Israel. Some of the scriptures that are important to a dispensational premillennialist. One would be 1 Thessalonians 5.19 which says this, do not quench the spirit. No, that's not what I wanted. My apologies. First Thessalonians 5, 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. A dispensationalist will say, see, that, that's talking about God is going to remove Christians from the earth before the great tribulation. While someone who's not a dispensational premillennialist would say, no, that's just saying that God's people are not destined for the wrath of final judgment because they have obtained salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. They're destined for salvation, not destined for wrath. They would say that's all that's referring to. Revelation 3, uh, verse 10, would be another one of those key verses. And so in the letter to the church at Philadelphia, 
Jesus says, because you kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Again, somebody who is not a dispensational premillennialist will say that's just referring to final judgment. When it says after that to try those who dwell on the earth, those who dwell on the earth refers to unbelievers in the book of Revelation. So they would say this is talking about the final judgment that's going to come down on those that dwell on the earth and Jesus's people will not suffer that final judgment because their sin has already been judged on the cross when Christ bore it for them. And so that's where the pushback uh, would be. But those are going to be verses that a premillennialist who is a dispensationalist is going to say it's talking about rapture. Uh, again, they are going to point to Genesis 15, 7 through 21, and they're going to say, hey, th- these are all unconditional promises. And though the Jewish people have failed to uphold their end of the deal, God is going to come back around and he is going to keep this promise. And because of that, uh, some people will say that there's almost like two programs that God has going on, one for the church and one for Israel that will come together uh, in the end for the glory of Christ, and that both programs, of course, are established and fulfilled by the blood of Jesus. It's, it's, it's all through the blood of Christ. Nothing's happening outside the blood of Christ here. All glory to Christ. Every good dispensational premillennialist will say that, but certainly God is keeping his promise to physical Israel in a bit of a different way uh, than he is keeping it to uh, the church. Um, so then they're also going to say the church is not specifically mentioned between Revelation 4 and Revelation 19. So where someone who is not a dispensationalist will say, yes, it is. It's mentioned in all sorts of different ways uh, with all of these different symbols and pictures that are being given to us by, uh, by the Lord. They're going to say, no, it's not specifically mentioned. And all those references are to the physical nation of Israel. This view has become very popular uh, in the 1800s, and it started with the Plymouth uh, Brethren, which were a group of fundamentalist Bible churches, and then it increased in popularity, and it remains very popular today. Part of the reason it increased in popularity was the popularity of the Schofield Bible, and Schofield certainly is one of the more notable dispensational premillennialists, but there's others like Hal Lindsey, uh, Chuck Smith from uh, Calvary Chapel. Some of you may have seen the Jesus Revolution, be familiar with him. Charles Stanley, uh, Tim LaHaye, certainly, who wrote the Left Behind books. And the Left Behind books did a lot to uh, progress the popularity of dispensational premillennialism. And then John MacArthur. I mean, John MacArthur is one of the most influential writers and expositors uh, in the church today, whether you like him or not. That is the reality. Uh, The man has had a massive influence. And John MacArthur, he's a little bit of an anomaly because he's a Calvinist, but he's dispensational. He would call himself maybe even uh, someone who holds a Reformed theology, but a lot of people who who hold a Reformed theology would say, Well, you can't be but so reformed if you're dispensational because they would count covenant theology, which I'll get to in a moment, as being a big part of reformed theology. And it's neither here nor there. Bottom line is John MacArthur's a little bit of an odd duck because you don't always see Calvinism and dispensational premillennialism going hand in hand the way that they do with MacArthur. In terms of the timeline, 
uh, in the way that a dispensational premillennialist is going to view history, they're going to say God had his work with Israel, then Jesus came, God has his work with the church, and he is not abandoning either of those works. Uh, a pre-tribulation uh, rapture dispensationalist is going to say that when God is finished with his work with the church, uh, Jesus is going to rapture the church, and then there will be the great tribulation. There will be this great revival among Jews, and, and there will be others that are saved during the great tribulation. A mid-tribulationist will say Jesus' return, or Jesus's rapture takes place um, halfway through the tribulation. But the bottom line is a dispensationalist is going to say there's a rapture that is a, a, apart from the second coming, and then at the end of the great tribulation is the second coming of Christ. Then there is the millennial reign, and then there is going to be the final judgment, and then comes the eternal age. So that would be the timeline. It's very linear in the way that a dispensational premillennialist, premillennialist is going to see Revelation playing out, and uh, they're going to be able to find that timeline really there within the book. Tim LaHaye wrote that there are two keys to understanding the prophetic word of God, and I think that any dispensational premillennialist has to hold to these two things. First, one must interpret the Bible literally unless the context provides good reason to do otherwise. Now, somebody who's not a dispensationalist, I can't help myself here, I would look at my brother Tim LaHaye, who is my brother, and I would say, Brother Tim, respectfully, I do think the book of Revelation gives us, I, I have no problem with what's said there. Interpret the Bible literally unless context provides good reason to do otherwise. I do think that the literary context of Revelation gives us good reason to do otherwise because it is Jewish apocalyptic literature and Jewish apocalyptic literature has a lot of moving pictures and numbers and symbols in order to communicate truth. And so the truths that are being communicated uh, certainly, they are literal truths, but I think that they're being communicated in symbolic ways. Do I believe, uh, personally, not being a dispensationalist, do I believe in a literal second coming of Christ? Of course I do. Do I believe that the literal second coming of Christ is communicated in Revelation through symbols? I absolutely believe it is. Because I think the literary context gives us license to be able to interpret the book of Revelation that way. And not just license, but I think urges us to do so. So I would disagree with Tim LaHaye there or would push back there if he was sitting in front of me. But Tim LaHaye, uh, certainly a brother in the Lord uh, and a very smart man, probably push right back at me uh, with a response. Second, we must understand that Israel and the church are distinct, Tim LaHaye says. And so again, that is huge. There, there, there has to be uh, this understanding of a distinction between the way God's dealing with Israel and the way God's dealing with the church. And LaHaye says, if a person is not going to acknowledge these two facts of Scripture, all discussion and argument is fruitless, meaning it's kind of like a non-starter. Uh, so that is a pretty good snapshot of dispensational premillennialism. Now, let's talk about historic premillennialism or classic premillennialism, which is going to differ. What is historic premillennialism? It is the belief that Christians will remain on the earth during the Great Tribulation. They're not going to come off the earth, not going to be raptured away. And that, that tribulation will have the purpose of purifying the church by rooting out false believers 
And then the second coming of Christ will occur, and that will precede the millennium. Historic premillennialism believes that the church has replaced the nation of Israel as God's covenant people. And that is what we would kind of refer to as covenant theology. Um, It's at least a part of covenant theology. And a dispensationalist is totally going to disagree with their classic or historic primo brothers when they say that. The earliest church fathers were historic premillennialists. They they certainly were. They envisioned an earthly millennium. During the first centuries of the Christian faith, the, the church fathers anticipated not only the physical reign of Jesus following a time of testing, but they also anticipated the restoration of all creation to its original goodness in a millennial kingdom. Historic premillennialism kind of starts to fade away with the later church fathers. Some say it's because they were influenced by Greek philosophy and they started to focus more on the spiritual aspects of Jesus's reign and were downplaying the idea of this earthly millennium. Now, what do historic premillennialists emphasize? We talked about what a dispensationalist emphasizes. What does a historic premillennialist emphasize? A historic premillennialist is going to try to balance the symbolic and literal interpretations of the book of Revelation. They're going to say, we're doing both. When we get to amillennialism, they're going to want to be very symbolic in their interpretations of Revelation. But a historic premill person is going to say, I'm keeping it balanced here. And they're going to say... We want to apply it to people's lives today, but we also want to understand what it meant in the first century. So they're really going to kind of champion themselves as the balanced view. According to a historic or classic premillennialist, they will say that God's promises of land and blessing to Abraham were not unconditional. So those Genesis 15 promises, not unconditional. They very much are conditional promises based on whether or not Abraham's people would be obedient. And they would say Israel's persistent disobedience violated God's covenant with them. And so now God has given the vineyard over to someone else, to the church. Now, that doesn't mean that all of Old Testament Israel are not God's people. Not at all. God has maintained, a historic premillennialist would say, a covenant of grace throughout the Old and New Testaments with anyone who trusted in him. Old Testament believers looking forward to the Messiah in faith. New Testament believers with the mystery of the gospel revealed looking back to the Messiah in faith. And the true Israel is anyone who has Abraham's faith in the heart. And they would point to like Romans 9, 6 through 8 as being a key text for this. And so I'm going to go there and I'm going to read that. Romans 9, starting in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now, that right there is a really big statement. And I think that that is a challenging verse for dispensationalists. Uh, I think they at least have to respond to that and and, and kind of come alongside Revelation 9, 6 through 8 and say, what's going on with this? And reconcile that with their beliefs. I I think that if you were going to have to have an apologetic for dispensationalism, you got to deal with these verses I'll tell you, for me, I was a dispensationalist when I went into seminary. I was not when I came out, and it was because of these verses right here. Verse 7, And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Meaning, just because you got Abraham's blood in your veins doesn't mean you're a child of Abraham. But through Isaac your offspring shall be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah will have 
a son. So they're going to say not all Israel is Israel. The only true Israelites are those who have Abraham's faith in the heart. And whether you're Jewish or Gentile, that is what makes you a part of the true Israel. And so Gentiles have been grafted into the true Israel, has been grafted into God's covenant people because God has extended the promises that, uh, that he has given to them and he has brought them into his covenant of grace. A historic premillennialist is also going to say most references to Israel in Revelation are referring symbolically to the church. They're going to disagree with their dispensationalist brothers who say, hey, between Revelation 4 and Revelation 19, church isn't even mentioned. They're going to say, oh, yes, it is. What scriptures seem to support historic premillennialism? They're going to point to Revelation 2. It's so funny because a dispensationalist goes to Revelation 3. And historic premillennialist goes, eh, go, go one chapter earlier and we'll point something out to you. So verses 22 and 23, behold, this is in the letter to the church at Thyatira. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart and I will give each of you according to your works. They'll point to those verses and say, see, the church is on the earth during the tribulation and they are being purified. Again, saints are on the earth during tribulation, kind of what I just talked about. Uh, Revelation 13, 7, another verse they're going to point to for this. Trying to get there. I had a typo and now I'm in Revelation 22. Here we go. Verse 7. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. That's talking about uh, the beast and they're saying, hey, the beast is making war on the saints and conquering them in the tribulation. So clearly they are on the earth. Uh, I mentioned how God's promises to Abraham and his offspring are seen as conditional. That is going to be uh, something that they're going to point to the scriptures for. They're going to point to Genesis 22. I don't have time to read all these, but Genesis 22, 18, 1 Chronicles 33, 8. Uh, Isaiah 1, 19 and 20. Jeremiah 7, 6 and 7. These are all important historic pre-mill scriptures. The New Testament, they're going to say, frequently uses Israel to refer to people that are Christians and that are not Jewish. And again, they're going to point to a text like Romans 9, 6 through 8 to make their point. Historic premillennialism has been prevalent since the beginning of the church. So like Irenaeus, who lived from 130 to 200 he was a premillennialist in the historic sense. Justin Martyr, the end of the first century to 165, historic premillennialist. Papias, who amazingly we believe was a disciple of the Apostle John, historic premillennialist. I am attracted to historic premillennialism because of this. I'm like, man, this is what the early church believed, right? This is what the early church fathers believed. But here's the thing. You can't do that. You can't just say, I'll believe what all the early church fathers believe, because if you go and read those early church fathers, they're kind of jacked up. <laughs> there's some really good stuff, and there's some stuff where they go off-road, man. They're flipping the car over at times. Like, it, it, there, there's some, they, they really start to get out into, uh, into the fringes with some of the things they're saying where you're going, whoa, that doesn't, that doesn't sound right. And so sometimes the early church fathers are hitting bullseyes and sometimes they're not hitting bullseyes. And if you start going, well, I'll just believe whatever they believed because they're the earliest tradition. 
what you've done is you've become very Roman Catholic because you're taking tradition and you're placing it right alongside Scripture. Whatever Papias believed is fine, but I've got to read the Scriptures and try to understand what God is saying through his Bible. Before I look at anything that Papias or Arrhenius or that Justin Martyr has to say, and if I, if I don't do that, again, I am starting to drift into kind of a Roman mindset. And I can tell you as a Protestant, I don't want to do that. So you got to be careful with that. But it is attractive to be able to say, yeah, I believe what the church has believed for 2,000 years. One of the reasons I struggle with dispensationalism is it's only a couple hundred years old. That's hard for me. That's hard for me. Again, it doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong because, hey, I just said that you, you can't just go with the oldest view. But there's not a lot of things that I believe as a Christian that I would say it's a doctrine that's only been around for a couple hundred of years. And I know you might hear me say that and go, well, you're a Protestant. Protestant Reformation, man, that's only 500 years old. Well, not really, because like when John Calvin was having a pen war with uh, the Catholic Sadaletto, he was saying to him, uh, Sadaletto was saying to Calvin that that the Protestants are novelists. You know, they're they're... they're not like writers, but they're new. What they're coming up with is new. They have all this new teaching. And Calvin was like, no, we don't. You guys have the new teaching. We're trying to take Christianity back to its scriptural roots here. We're trying to reform it. And so Matthew Barrett has a book out right now called Reformation as Renewal. That's how the reformers viewed what they were doing. They're saying, we, we, this reformation is a renewal of historic Christianity. It's not novel. It's not something new. And so I would reject that idea of the Protestant Reformation, that Protestant theology is only 500 years old. Some of the ways we define it, some of the terms we use might be 500 years old, but we would say, no, these are just the historic truths of, of God's self-revelation in the Bible, where dispensational premillennialists are going to say, yeah, we believe the same thing. Uh, but it's just hard for me to go, man, for 1,800 years, nobody knew, nobody knew, nobody was teaching this until 1820. That's difficult for me. And on the other hand, I kind of want to be a classic premillennialist or a historic premillennialist because I'm like, yeah, they believe this. This is what people have been believing for 2,000 years. But it doesn't mean I can just hang my hat there. So uh, just before we wrap up, the timeline for a historic premillennialist, they would say you have the church age, society is growing increasingly evil, and that is going to culminate in a great tribulation that the church will remain on earth for. Then the second coming of Christ is going to happen and when Jesus comes, um, the rapture and the second coming are not separate events, but simultaneous events, and that believers in Christ are caught up with the Lord in the air and will, it will return immediately to reign with him in the millennial kingdom, and then after the millennial kingdom, which some historic premillennialists will say is a literal 1,000 years. Some will say, no, it's just a, a, a really long time that God has appointed. Then there's going to be the eternal age after that. So that is the understanding. It it certainly is a bit simpler on the timeline than dispensational and premillennialism is, but again, simplicity doesn't necessarily determine what is true. Um, it's just a fact that if you look at the two timelines, one is a bit more simple because you don't have those two programs and you don't have the uh, with Israel and the church and you don't have these separate events in the second coming and the rapture. So Anyways, that's it. That's premillennialism. Those are the, the, the two different views. Just to kind of go back and um, do a little bit of review as we close up. Will Jesus physically return? Both uh, premillennialists will say absolutely. You have to say that to be an Orthodox Christian. When will Jesus return? 
A dispensational premillennialist will say after a seven-year tribulation before the millennium. A historic premillennialist will say after a seven-year tribulation before the millennium. Do the rapture and second coming of Christ occur at the same time? No. They are events separated by either seven years, a pre-tribulational rapture, or three and a half years, a mid-tribulational rapture. That's going to be the answer of the dispensationalists. No, they don't occur at the same time. And this is where there's the divergence. Historic premillennialists will say, yes, they do occur at the same time. Both believe in a great tribulation. Dispensational premillennialists do not believe that Christians will be uh, there for any of the tribulation or they will be there for only half of the tribulation, while a historic premillennialist will say, no, Christians will be on the earth for the whole tribulation. Will there be a literal thousand-year millennium? Yes, after the seven-year tribulation, Christ will return and reign for a thousand years, says the dispensationalist. Yes, after the tribulation, Christ will return and reign for a thousand years or a really long time, says the historic premillennialist. Who is saved? Both say Christians only. Again, hey, that's, that's just Orthodox Christianity. Is the modern state of Israel relevant to the prophecies in Revelation? Yes, says the dispensational premillennialist, because those Abrahamic promises are unconditional. No, says the historic premillennialist, those were conditional promises. And again, when was this view most held? Became popular in the 1800s. Dispensational premillennialism did uh, gained in popularity uh, in the the last century with the publishing of the Left Behind books. And then, when it comes to historic premillennialism, it is the earliest view of the end times emerging at the end of the first century. So that's it. That's where we end it for today. We'll be back with uh, part two next week, talking about amillennialism, talking about postmillennialism. Before we go, let me ask our questions. Brothers and sisters, how is your soul? How is your soul? How is God's grace at work in your life? How would you like his grace to be at work in your life? As you consider these questions, I want to encourage you to reach out to a pastor if you need to talk. Connect at SeafordBaptist.com. We'll get right back to you with pastoral care. Uh, But until next time, keep living that pilgrim life.